Well, good morning. Good morning. Am I on loud enough for everybody to hear me? There we go. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be back where it's a little warm. All right, hasn't been warm around here for a while, has it? Nice to have a little warmth. Thank you guys for those of you who prayed for me. I had a trip to, uh, up to Kentucky last week, not this week, but the previous week. That was a, just a really great time to be with the men who serve on the executive committee for Sovereign Grace Ministries. And obviously just a lot happening in Sovereign Grace these days and a lot of new direction, uh, new uh, ministries and, and new relationships being formed amongst leaders. And so I appreciate your prayers for us as we move forward in that direction. I didn't realize, I, I realized last minute that I was, I was flying through Chicago to come home at the end of January. And something in me told me that's sounding like a problem. You know, winter, Chicago, airplanes. It just didn't sound like a good mix. And sure enough, it was not a good mix. And so they canceled my flight coming back. They told me I could fly out two days from now. And I just abandoned the airplane and just got in a car and drove all the way home from uh, Indiana. But warning, don't fly through Chicago in the wintertime. Uh, well, if you'll open your word this morning to Romans chapter 1, we are continuing today in our series. We've titled this, Fixing Your Happiness by Fixing Your Gaze. And I think you kind of know something about the happiness word. You know, no matter who you are, even if I've never met you and don't know you, we have that in common. You're here this morning you're venturing through life today and you're hoping to, to take a step further in the happiness pool. I just want to get in deeper into some kind of happiness. I want my life to improve in a category that I think is significant and that matters. Well, you and I have that in common. You could be a, a missionary or you could be a murderer and you both have that in common. You could be a pastor or a prostitute and you have that in common. This is how we're living our lives. We want the sense of well-being for our life, our sense of reward and enjoyment to improve. So we're all in the happiness thing together. What we might not all be in is this, this gazing thing. You know, what exactly are we talking about when it comes to fixing your happiness by fixing your gaze? Well, that, that's where I want us to, to learn something. So we're going to turn a corner here. We've spent some time looking at this thoughts about happiness, thoughts from our culture about happiness, ideas that are invading us about happiness. But I want to turn us now in the next coming weeks to fixing our gaze. And I want to start, though, by bringing us to what might be the unhappiest neighborhood of Scripture that's available to us as mankind. And it's in Romans chapter 1. These are not happy Scriptures. These are some unhappy descriptions for a human being. But, but what I, I want us to see something in here that's going to be critical for what we understand about gazing. Because what's in this passage, if you will, is sort of the, uh, the origins of an unhappy universe. If you want to find out what is it that created this sense of displeasure that exists in our lives. Where did this unhappiness come from? You know, I'm not a big bang theorist, but if there was a big bang, Romans chapter 1 was the big bang of unhappiness. 
The unhappy universe comes exploding onto the scene and it gets explained to us here. So in a way, if, if you're sitting here today and your battle to be content, to find joy, to have a sense of well-being in your soul, to be happy in your life isn't happening real well. Uh, your unhappiness, my unhappiness is going to be discovered in this passage. There's a reason why we experience that. So let's read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul, writing in the first century, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember that word gospel means good news. It's good, and it's news. So I'm not ashamed of that. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me just just connect some points here for us. As we move through this study of happiness, can we just try and hold on to a bunch of things we've already talked about? But sitting in the life of a human being is is divine design. Are you aware that God has divinely designed you. He's installed wiring, computer chips, and sensory monitors and effects in your soul. So he's wired you for happiness. Right? I mean, you read the Bible. The Bible's got a lot about suffering in it. The Bible's got a lot about difficulty in it and trials, and there's purposes behind those things. But the Bible clearly teaches something that's good and bad in in Scripture. There's good things and there's bad things. There's things that seem to be on God's preference list. And there's things that are not on his preference list. So there's there's a sense of well-being that God wants for your life. But there's also words in the Scriptures like, we've already read, words like righteousness. For in the gospel, the good news, righteousness is revealed. How many of you have ever thought about how important righteousness is to your happiness. So that means a stiff sounding word in righteousness. It sounds like obedience and sounds like doing the right thing. But have you ever thought that the God who wired you and created you has attached your happiness to something called righteousness? And this is why it's really important. It's why we spent some time unscrewing some of the ideas about happiness because I don't think you can receive God's idea about happiness, unless you're willing to forfeit some of our own bad ideas about it. All right, so that's, that's kind of where we're headed here. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen carefully, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And I don't know where you are in arguing about your origins, arguing about the invisible God's existence. But this, this is just a fact from God's perspective, right? Maybe from, maybe from your perspective, from humanity's perspective, from an over-dependence on scientific abilities perspective. Uh, maybe your jury is out on whether God exists. But can I just tell you, God's jury is not out on whether he exists. And as far as he's concerned, he's shown you enough to believe in him. 
And that's sobering. Now, maybe you've talked to somebody else who says, you know, there's not enough evidence that God exists. Can I just tell you, I don't know who that guy is. I don't know how many letters are behind his name. And I don't know if anybody even knows who he is. He's just a guy with an opinion. But this God who made everything, as far as he's concerned, he has shown you enough for you to come to believe in him. He says they're clearly perceived. Right? Verse 21. For although... And that verse says, so they are without excuse. There's no excuse. God has shown enough for us to believe in him. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Before I read the rest of this passage, can I be politically connected here? I'm not trying to be politically correct, but if if I don't make this note, that passage will stick out to you louder than everything else in the passage because the, the culture has taught you to pay attention to... I mean, I'm I'm watching the Olympics, and I can't get away from... In watching the Olympics, a conversation about gay perspectives, the rights of gays, worldwide issues, people are protesting. This is a very loud issue. So we come to a passage like this, and this passage says something about it. Now, this passage doesn't use politically correct language. Right? If you stood up publicly and said, I believe that men with men in homosexual relationship is a shameless act. You would be saying one of the most politically incorrect things that you could be saying at this point in the history of man. But here's a fact. Here's a fact. Well, and I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable by saying this. I just want us to appreciate the Bible spoke a long time ago about this. The Bible spoke before the culture shifted. You know, I mean, I, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember that the culture viewed homosexuality one way for a big chunk of my life. And then all of a sudden it's changed and it views it differently. And in a way it's creating laws and requiring everybody to view it that way. Well, long before any of that controversy broke out, right? Can we just stop and regain some breath here for a second? Say Romans was written in the first century AD long before any of this became politically charged information in a little bitty experimental nation called America where all of a sudden we have some ideas. God has, God has already spoken. See, this, this is the, the great footwork 
of sin at its worst in that it stops giving a rip about who God is and what he has said. And this is basic premise for you and I. God owns the planet and he owns every one of us. He owns us. He owns everything. He doesn't have to take a vote or ask for an opinion about anything. It's his right as God to create things a certain way and then expect those certain ways to exist amongst his creation. It's his right. He's not wrong for being at odds with public opinion today. But I want you to notice this. I'm going to keep reading here. Right? Those verses, they, they kind of stick out. They call something shameless. All right, let's keep reading because the church has been taught to read that verse differently than the ones that are coming here. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, now I don't know where, where, how you feel about some of those descriptions, but if I ask for people to stand up right now, how many gossips are in the room? Some of you just may not realize you're a gossip, but you're a gossip. You're talking about other people's lives to other people besides those people. You're involving other people in problems and you're just concerned about that. And you've used your concern and the topic of righteousness to go to somebody else and have an inappropriate conversation. That's gossip. And you walked in the back door of this church this morning and you're sitting down amongst God's people. How many of you guys know something about being disobedient to parents? Even though you're a parent, remember at some point you were not a parent. You were the child of a parent. I, I have a resume of disobedience to parents that's sitting in my file. It's pretty severe. Makes me grateful for the shorter resumes that my children have uh, in their lives. But this is a room full of people who have been disobedient to parents. Anybody in here struggle with envy? Anybody got any boastful issues? Anybody? Right? Everybody walked through the back door. No one had a big controversy over, what are we going to do with all the boastful people walking in the church this morning? But, but let a homosexual walk in the back door. And the church is freaking out because it's been taught by the culture. It's the same chapter with the same God with the same list of problems. It's, it's unrighteousness as God installed right ways and rightness in his creation and man went astray in all these categories. It's unrighteousness. It's just a variety of unrighteousness. 
And so, you know, we look at these things, we should look at them through the lens of Scripture here. But let me just go to this address for a moment. Right, when you show up in Romans chapter 1, this is an unhappy address to live at. Right, some of this stuff advertises itself on the front end as, as kind of fun. You know, we kind of like some of the excessive lifestyle, the indulging of pleasures. Uh, at some point, we're disobedient to parents because we're thinking there's a good trade-off here. Parents want this, but this looks like it's really fun. So we, we trade for that. So there's a promise of happiness in all this chapter floating around. But if you've lived life very long, you realize what, what, you, what you get cheap on the front end costs you later. Right? So is, if you're planning on being alive for more than a week... You've got to think about happiness beyond just the moment of pleasure, don't you? And, and most of us are thinking we're going to be alive for more than a week, a month, a year, several years. We're going to be around for a while. So momentary pleasure comes in the form of anything listed in this chapter that we can just give ourselves to and indulge our lives in and have a momentary pleasure experience from that. But then our life is going to play out and it's going to roll out. And it's, this chapter is full of relational conflicts and difficulties and struggles and offenses and, and brokenness that takes place between people. How many of you guys, if you've lived for a week, you know it's not fun to have broken relationships. Is that fun? Is that a happy moment? Is that a happy address to live at? Right? I mean, you, whatever it is, whether it's parents or, or husbands and wives, you break and fracture that relationship, you live in regret, you live in guilt, you live in covering things up and hiding them. You live in the sense of brokenness that it's brought to that relationship. The relationship can't really be honestly what it's supposed to be because, because you're, you're kind of living a lie around that, that person. Right? There's, there's problems in this passage. Right? And there's a feature here. How would you like to have this on your resume? You want to you see the, the most regrettable moment in human history is when man has his foolish mind darkened and he makes this great decision. I think I'll exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of humanity and animals and creeping things. How's that for a trade? Right? You have the immortal God, the all-satisfying, mysterious, wonderful, eternal, mind-blowing God and you've got that, you can, you can possess that, or behind door number one is images of people who look like you, and animals and creeping things. And you can bow down to those things, and you can look to those things, and you can be dazzled by those things, and you can worship those things, and you can be amazed by those things. How about a trade? And humanity steps and says, deal, I'll take it. I like that. How many of you guys have made some decisions in your life that, that, that just are just filled with regret. You decided to do something that you regret the day you did that. That's a regrettable decision right there. And, and I don't think for us, tikis and statues and, and those kinds of images, you know, the images you and I are, are willing to trade God for are the images that pop up on magazine screens and billboards and in TV commercials and in highlight reels on Facebook Right now, none of us sit down. This is where, I mean, let's, let, we got to deal with the realities of decisions that we make. None of us sit down and say, okay, show me the document where I 
I fill out the form and I sign that I officially exchange God for uh, financial security and human wealth. We don't, we don't do that, do we? None of us in here have signed that document. Here's what we do, though. On a daily basis, on a daily basis, we have set before us the knowledge of God and financial security, luxury, wealth, popularity, whatever it is that, that shows itself as an image and says, hey, if you'll possess me, you'll possess joy and life and meaningfulness. And so we have that, that decision to make before us. We don't sign a document, but we neglect the knowledge of God and 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 choose this over and over and over and over again. And, and so at the end of the day, we're no different than these guys in Romans chapter one. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of something else. It's not a good trade, is it? but we do it, right? We're in this chapter. Decisions are being made. They're bad decisions, as tough as those are. You've got two or three verses in here that describe God as turning people over to their lusts, right? I want this, I want this, I want this. God says, no, that's not righteous. You want want this instead. I, I don't want that. I want this, I want this, I want this. We fight, resist, kick, scream. And at some point God says, have it. And the strange thing is, is when God does that, these, these things because, become dominant lust and passions, and then they grow into a perverse category. Right? So you go from them being in your life, right? I mean, listen, you can be, ladies, you can be here living in an image-conscious culture that's promoting to you image, 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 how you look, how's your weight, how's your appearance. And next thing you know... You sort of get given to that. That appearance thing becomes the thing that's going to satisfy your soul. It's going to fix you. You're going to find happiness. If you can just fix your image, well, next thing you know, you're, you're plastic surgery bound. You're flirting and dealing with eating disorders. See, it becomes, it becomes perverse. It becomes way over the top. It becomes dominating and controlling. Why is that? Well, because at its origin, it... it the knowledge of God wasn't sufficient. I, I wanted something else. So there's all kinds of categories like this that can exist in our lives. But here's, here's the epicenter. Here's the big bang of unhappiness. Why, why does all this happen? Well, look in verse 18. God is revealing his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. What's taking place here is a suppressing of what can be known about God. For what can be known about God, it's plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. This is God and who he is to us. That can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And when you come down to verse 28, you find again the same thought being summarized. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Some translators actually translate that passage to say, since they didn't see fit to have God in their knowledge, 
They wanted to know things. They were eager to know things. They were quick to become students, but they were not quick to become students of God. And so when you read Romans chapter 1, it's not a happy address. These are, these are not happy conditions to live in. How did, how did they get created? People who rejected the knowledge of God. People created a life that didn't come from what they saw in God. It came from what they saw somewhere else. And that's how you get Romans chapter 1. That's how, in my opinion, you get to the unhappiest address in the Bible. By doing this. Making the knowing of God neglected, rejected, unimportant, or really just secondary to some other pursuit. Right, so if I could give you a recipe on, hey, this, this is a whole lot easier to preach, by the way, and it's a whole lot easier to live, too. If I could say, hey, guys, today's message is how to be unhappy. <laughs> That's an easy message, right? Uh, here's how to be unhappy. Take the knowing of God and neglect it or just flat out reject it or treat it as unimportant or secondary to other things. Take that one thing about life and treat it that way and I can promise you money back guarantee unhappiness. I promise you. That's where that will take you. And it will look like what's described in this category. Now, how is this connected to this gazing dimension in our life? Well, let me, let me get us to think for a moment. And we'll go back into Romans here. Experiential reality. I think I wrote this out in, in your outline. Experiential reality. Our existence is a seeing and responding existence. Right? Just real basically. That's, what, that's, what, that's the mechanics of our life. We see something and we respond to it. I mean, look at whatever it is that makes up your life. You know, most of us here speak English. You, you know, you, you have certain careers that you are pursuing. You have certain lifestyle habits. You have an appearance about you. You have a hairstyle. You wear certain types of clothing. You avoid certain other ones. You know what would look horrible on you. For some reason, you just know this stuff, right? There are certain hobbies for you that, that they occupy a significant piece of your life. You have a belief system in your life. Where did all that stuff come from? All of it, every bit of it. You saw something and you responded to it. Now you've seen a bunch of things. A lot of things that you've seen, you've rejected. There's a lot of stuff, you know, if you, you know, ladies, when you go shopping, some of you guys who like to shop too, when you go shopping, there's certain stuff that just screams out at you, this is all wrong for you, right? It's like a deep religious conviction. I mean, you just know those shoes are a violation of my conscience and you just would never wear something like that. But there's other stuff that you see it and you respond in faith and you move toward it when you respond in faith. Now, there's faith that rejects it and moves towards something else, but there's faith that owns something, right? But before you respond to it, you have to see it, right? Before you buy, purchase, spend your lifetime, money, and energy, you have to see something, in order to respond to it. Now, not all seeing is equal. Right? There's a variety of the ways in which you see things. And I was sitting, watching something on TV with Drew before Christmas, and 
you know, before Christmas, uh, you know, commercials are just designed before Christmas to scream at a six-year-old. They're just designed that way. They find their way into a six-year-old's soul. And so this commercial comes on, and, and it was kind of the tail end of it. And uh, so at the end of it, Dad, did you see that? I want that. I want that for Christmas. Just, it just awakened his soul. Uh, for me, it was like, uh, no, what was it? I, to- I totally couldn't even tell you what it was. He saw something in a way that I didn't see it. Right? He stared at that, took it in, studied it, could describe it, and he began to describe it to me, what it was. It was this boxing thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally blank. I, I was in the room, I, you know, I saw, but I didn't see. Right? And there's a lot of stuff in our life that's that way, right? There's, and I, I put two different words in your outline there. there there's glancing and there's gazing. There's glancing at God. And there's gazing at God. They're not the same, right? To glance means to direct the gaze briefly. Glance at the menu. Glance in the rearview mirror. A brief or cursory look. But then there's gaze. To gaze means to look fixedly. To look for a long time with unwavering attention. That's what gazing is. It's, it's staring and studying. And Drew was gazing at that object. I glanced at it. I couldn't have told you anything about it. I didn't see any personal value in it from me or him or anybody. He was ready to write a small book on, on what he saw. And, and you know, this, this sort of gaze feature, it's almost like our, our spiritual zoom lens in, in, in life. And you've, you've got this in you. In a variety of categories. How many of you guys? Uh, how many of you guys own a boat? Wow, really? That's all. How many of you guys are not from Southeast Louisiana? What is the problem around here? <laughs> right. If you're if you're an avid fisherman or you own a boat, you're driving down the highway, and up the other side of the highway comes a guy pulling a boat. You see that boat, don't you? Matter of fact, by the time that boat has passed your line of sight, you know approximately how many feet it is, what color it is, what kind of draft it has, and whether that motor makes it go really fast or the guy didn't do a good job of sizing that motor, right? You know all that just in a moment, right? And I, and, you know, I could pass that and you go, did you see that boat? And I could have gone, what boat? <laughs> right? I, well, I saw it, but you saw it. It's a big difference, right? How many of you guys own a motorcycle? All right. All right. You're driving in traffic. Motorcycle comes and passes you up. By the time that dude goes past you, you know everything about that motorcycle, don't you? You know the sound when it was coming up. You could probably tell the passenger what kind of motorcycle it was just based on the sound of it. And then you know the size and, you know, you know the numbers associated with it. Because you see differently than the other person that you would turn and say, hey, did you see that motorcycle? Uh, no, no. Well, he kind of did because you couldn't hear it. You know, you couldn't miss hearing it. It passed you up. But there's a different way of seeing. There's glancing and there's gazing. And they're not the same. And what's interesting in Romans, go back in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. There's, this is, verse 17 is a seeing and responding passage. It describes the mechanism of our life. For 
In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? That's what's happening every day in our lives. We are living by faith. Now, faith, faith is a seeing mechanism for a Christian. Faith is something that you actually see, right? There's two things going on in faith. Always. There's always these two things going on in faith. There's an object for your faith. And then there's a response to what you saw. Always going on in faith. So whenever faith is occurring in our lives, it's because we first have seen something and then we have responded to it. So if you want to know how your walk of faith is going, those two factors are going to inform the life that you're living. Now, here's my warning. Here's, here's a critical element for what we're seeking to do in this series. Warning. There's a knowing that's not really knowing. And there's a hearing that's not seeing. In the, in the spiritual world of being a Christian, there's a knowing that's not really knowing. And there's a hearing that's not seeing. Right? And I'll give you examples of that. The first one comes from this passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Although they knew God, there was some revelation made available to them. There was some level, right? If we read this passage, the context gives away this is not saving knowledge. This is not a knowledge of knowing God that produces uh, regeneration by the Spirit. But it is acknowledged as a level of knowing God. There is some kind of knowing of God going on in this passage. But whatever God saw, whatever was seen in that moment it failed to produce a response that either caused honoring of God or giving of thanks. But it was some level of knowing. Douglas Moo says, the outward manifestation of God and his creative works was met with a real, though severely limited knowledge of him among those who observe those works. This limited knowledge of God falls far short of what is necessary to establish a relationship with him. Knowledge must lead to reverence and gratitude. Real knowledge, right? Because it didn't lead to that for these guys. They had a knowledge of God that didn't produce reverence and gratitude. It never put God into such a significant category for them that they were overwhelmed and and responded with reverence. There was no wow about God taking place in their life. There was no awareness that he was God and therefore everything on the receiving end from me is from him, which produces gratitude in our lives. Whatever they saw didn't bring about that kind of response in their lives, right? Real seeing, I think I wrote this out in your outline. Real seeing and knowing leads to a response. Real seeing and knowing leads to a response. Reverence. 
worship, affection toward God. Right? God, God is many things, and I hope I have not taught you to answer this question this way, but I know if I were to say God is, you would say love. You wouldn't say holy? Just kidding. Um, but you should, because the Bible says more about God being holy than it does about him being love. But he is love. God is love. So if I look and I see love, uh, shouldn't there be some response of my affections in light of actually seeing God's love for me? To be disaffectionate toward God, to not have a passion toward him, to not have warm affections for God, gives away something. Gives away a lack of seeing. I'm not really seeing. Right? I mean, we were, reality of our life is that we are a person who doesn't find it easy to forgive people. People have done us wrong. We're here this morning, and, and if you would just be honest for a second, there are people you're at odds with right now. Big offenses, historic offenses, family offenses, little offenses. They're people that have, they've done something that's adjusted your mood toward them. So you don't want to really be around them. Big things, maybe you're thinking of people that you haven't called them or talked to them in years. Years. Because of something that's happened. Smaller things, maybe even recent things. But, but you giving away forgiveness, you being eager to give away forgiveness is not a familiar experience for you. My question is, if you have seen the forgiveness of God for you and you have responded with unforgiveness for others, it leaves me with this conclusion, and I think I'm right. You have not really seen the forgiveness of God. You have a knowing like they had a knowing. Although they knew God, it didn't produce a response. You have some level, you have heard of forgiveness from God, but you have not seen it. Because if you saw it, no one would have to put a gun to your head and argue you into a corner when you come for a counseling meeting that you must forgive someone else. You must, I require it of you. Don't come back for counseling meeting number two until you've taken care of that. Well, I don't know what you're seeing at that point. I think you're just seeing the end, a dead end for counseling. And you're, you're going to go ahead and respond. How can you gaze, stare at, see the forgiveness of God for you, and not respond by giving it to whosoever has offended you in life? How is that possible? How, how can we see the, the greatness of God? The splendor, the, the magnificence of God and, and, and walk around with boastful attitudes, self-important type attitudes, easily offended because you didn't, you didn't treat me like I'm important. You didn't acknowledge me. You didn't say something to me that I think you should have given, given the level of importance of who I really am. And you failed to acknowledge something about my contribution or the fact that I just passed you in the hallway and I'm, I'm offended by that. Why are you offended? Because I have a very large view of me. And I can't believe you don't either. Well, you know what fixes a really large view of you? 
is seeing something really, 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 really large. When you take in the scope and the majesty and the greatness of God, you will have a fresh opinion of yourself. And if you don't, if you're one of those people who, you know, you're, you're, you just, you're just clever. You know, you're cleverly working your resume into every conversation. You just find ways to let people know what you did that was great recently and last week and with this person and who you know. And you're just, you're just busy. You just, you've become a craftsman at self-publishing. Uh, I, 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 I can't say with confidence that you've truly seen the greatness of God. See, when you see true greatness, you want to publish true greatness. And all of a sudden, your greatness becomes really, really below average. Really, really not impressive. But God's greatness, and that's something worth talking about. That's something to boast in. Right, so if, if I'm in that pride category, it's, it's, it's not just a matter of I've got a pride problem. I've got a seeing God problem going on in my life. I don't see God. You know, we're living in a culture that we're getting infested by this investment love, this love broker mentality. It's like, I want to be involved in your life and I want to make a couple of contributions to you. But the second I do, I'm waiting for it to come back. I'm waiting to see how you're going to treat me. How important am I going to be to you? How are you going to respond to me? You know, what significance will you let me play in your life now? How will you make me feel because I did something into your life? But yet then you stare at the love of God And you come to realize God gives love to me knowing that I'm going to abuse it, misuse it, walk away from it, treat it like it's worthless. And then he turns around and gives it to me again. Not strings attached. There's no sense of, hey, I'll be God to you, Keith, as long as you can pull off being a really better version of Keith to me. If you'll invest in me, I'll invest in you. Well, see... If I've not seen that about God, I I don't have that to give to you. I may have glanced at God. I may have a little bit of an idea about some of this stuff, but I don't know that I've truly seen God, right? Really seeing something about God fixes something about us, right? Really, really seeing something about God fixes something about us, Right, let me give you my other example here. We, we brought up Job last week or two weeks ago. Right, Job, no, nobody is living at a more unhappy experiential address than Job. I mean, it's just, he's, he's our go-to guy. Right? If, if you're in a, in a form of suffering that finally has really overtaken you, you go to Job for advice, don't you? I mean, if when life has really been bad, that's when you pick up the book of Job and you say, okay, how did this guy make it? Right, so you remember his story. Job's got a pretty good life. Things are going pretty well for him. For reasons that he's not aware of, everything just goes over the waterfall and changes quickly. And so he loses, he loses wealth. He loses his business. He loses all of his children. It's questionable what kind of relationship he ends up with his wife after all this struggle and difficulty. He, he loses his good name. And then he hangs around with some bad theologians and they accuse him of bad stuff. And so he's got people that find him criminally responsible for everything that's happening in his life. And so finally he gets to the point where he raises some issues with God. I guess he's listened to the bad theology long enough to where he comes to God and he says, you know, God, if I weren't a pretty good guy, I could understand why this has happened to me. 
If I hadn't done this good thing and that good thing and that good thing, as a matter of fact, if I had done this evil and that evil and that evil, I would understand those particular things being visited upon me. It's like, hey, Job, that's an interesting thought. Where Your friends helped you with that one? That, that God's giving you what you deserve. Oh, okay. That's how God works. So he argues with God, raises these questions. And, and who, can, who can blame him? Right? I mean, if I'm in his shoes, this is a painful, difficult, disappointing, unhappy experience. But that's not how Job exits the book. Job exits the book a, a man who's at peace. A man whose soul has turned the switch. He, he's able to, to say, it, it is well with my soul. Well, do you, do you remember what it was that fixes Job? It's so contrary to the things that we think will fix us. Right? We, we would have been tempted to think bad circumstance, bad circumstance, bad circumstance. Well, what will fix me? Well, a good circumstance, that's what would fix me. How about something turning around here? How about a better bank account? How about some improved business? How about some relationship improving? That's not what fixes Job. God sits down with Job, and in four chapters, now if you read your Bible, four chapters is a lot of material. You think about anything that gets four chapters worth of explanation in Scripture. It's not a lot. For four chapters in a row, 38, 39, 40, and 41, God sits down with Job, and all God does is reveal himself to Job through a series of questions. Job, do you understand this about creation? Job, do you understand the stars who moves them? Who manages them? Job, do you have any idea what causes the calf to be born? Who's maintaining the processes of reproduction for all the animals? Ever? Job, any idea where the light goes when it's dark? Job, you got any idea how any of that stuff takes place? You know, the snow, Job. Where's the storehouse for that? I mean, he's speaking in such simplistic, you know, the scientists here are going, you know, God thinks there's a storehouse for snow. No, Job thought there was. So God's having to explain stuff to Job. Job, do you get any of this stuff? I get it, Job. I get it because I made it all. I made it all. And, I, and I'm managing every moment of it. Every molecule. And you don't even know about molecules, Job. But one day, you'll discover molecules. And they got protons and neutrons. And they got electrons that travel and pass around them. And I'm managing every electron. And then someday... You brilliant scientists are going to discover some kind of little gadget that will let you look at things smaller than electrons. I'm managing those two, Job. Do you know anything about that? And after God just reveals himself to Job, Job says this. God, I had heard of you with the ear, but now my eye sees you. And he repented of his questions and repostured his life with all that had just happened to him. What was it that fixed Job? It was just a revelation of God. God just pulled back the veil and said, Job, look at me, Job. And, you know, quite honestly, in this exchange, it doesn't appear, this is important, it doesn't appear as though his physical eyes saw anything when he used the phrase, but now my eyes see. See, listen, there's, there's a hearing that's not seeing. You can hear stuff in your life and, and not really see it. 
And that, that's, that's what produces a forgiveness that doesn't give forgiveness. Oh yeah, sure, I've heard of forgiveness. There's not a person in this room who hasn't heard that God forgives sin. No one here can walk into this building today and say, wow, wow I've, I'm hearing that for the first time. Everybody knows God forgives sin. You've heard that. You've heard that God is great. You've heard that God is sovereign over his creation. You've heard that. But my question is, have you seen it? Because you respond differently to the things that you see versus the things you've just heard, right? John Piper says, Job is a broken and changed man. That's what happens when you really see God, right? Job is a broken and changed man. He's in one condition and then he sees God and he's in another condition. This man who was desperately needing to get fixed, gets fixed. If I I were to ask you today, you're, you're here in this building, you're living life, you carved out time to be in church this morning. Are you a broken and changed person right now? In your life, the way you're living, are you a broken and changed person? Just a little self-examination there. Or what if you're not? What if you're concluding, um, no, I'm, I'm kind of a little out of control right now. Rather inconsistent. I don't have my life directed toward God well. I, I, I don't know if I'd say I'm broken and changed. Well, all right, do we, do we just have an altar call that says, hey, why don't you come forward? And we're just going to make a decision about being broken and changed. You can come up. We'll pray for you. You decide you're going to be a broken and changed man. I don't think that's completely wrong to do something like that. But that's not what happened with Job. Job didn't become a broken and changed man by sitting out and deciding, I'm going to be a broken and changed man. From now on, I'm a broken and changed man. There was a step before he became a broken and changed man. It was seeing God. God, I'd heard of you before, but now I see you. And it produced in him brokenness and change. Piper goes on and says, it happened to Isaiah. Right? Woe is me, for I am lost, in Isaiah 6. For I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Whatever was Isaiah's story up until that moment, when he sees God upon his throne, it, it fixes him. It changes this man. And he launches out in his life in a very, very different way. It happened to Peter. When Jesus showed his power, I've been hanging around Jesus, but I see something deeper of him. And Peter responds, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It happened to the centurion when Jesus came to his house. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But he had great faith to believe what Jesus would do in his life. Before Job saw God in this way, he had esteemed himself somewhat highly. And had not hesitated to assert his righteousness. Now he sees himself more clearly. And what he sees drives him to repentance. If we don't feel grieved for our sin. Do you feel, do you feel grieved for your sin? Do you, do you feel deeply convicted about your sin? 
Does it, does it sit in your life as something that is hostile, irritating, agitating to you? Or does it just sit there like furniture? That's a seeing function. If I don't see God well, I can, I can, I can have roommate affections for my sin. It's when I see God that I can't stand to be in the same room with my own sin. Because I've seen something about God that's affected me. If we don't feel grieved for our sin and deeply unworthy of God's goodness, then we need to pray earnestly that God would show us himself. That he would cease to be a mere doctrine that we hear with our ear and instead would become an awesome, infinitely holy, dreadful, and wonderful sovereign that we taste and see with our hearts. In the day of deep trouble for Job, for you and me, in the day of deep trouble, in the day of severe gripping unhappiness, a hearing knowledge of God rather than a seeing knowledge of God, is going to leave us desperately, desperately trying to deal with life. When it really gets dark in your life, as it did for Job, you, you can't have a, oh, I've heard of that relationship with God. You're going to need to have seen something for yourself. You know the difference between somebody telling you what they saw? Immediately, once they tell you what they saw, it becomes what you heard. Not what you saw. You ever have somebody describe a wreck on the interstate? You know, There's a lot of wrecks on the interstate these days. So my wife's always telling me, oh, honey, I saw this wreck. And so she's describing this wreck. And, you know, for her, there's this, there's this sense of awe because just the, the, you know, the wreck was horrible all over the road, you know, but for me, I'm just hearing it. It doesn't affect me the same way as when you saw it. <laughs> I'm going to age, age some of you guys here. How many of you guys saw the Monday night football game where Joe Theismann was sacked by Lawrence Taylor and his leg was broken? How many of you guys saw that game? Did it turn your stomach? Right, the close-up replay of a leg that once looked like this, and then it snapped right about sock height, and just the the stub went into the grass. You know, something in my stomach just kind of went. You know, it's like I wanted to watch the replay, and then I wished I hadn't. It's like, oh, there's certain images in my head I can't get away from now. That seeing, right? That seeing that almost became vomitous seeing. You just repeat that to somebody else. It's kind of like, ooh, yeah, that sounds kind of bad. When you see it, trust me, when you see it, it will affect your stomach differently than what you just heard me describe. In, in your day of dark trouble, you, you cannot just have a hearing of God relationship. You, you need to have seen something about him. If you're ever going to be a Christian who lives a risk-taking life for the kingdom of God, like Isaiah did, that's willing to have his life turned upside down, to go on behalf of God to a people who don't want to hear what he has to say, to go in faith, to bring a message 
that people want to reject over and over and over again. If you're ever going to do what looks unattractive and takes faith to do, like Isaiah did, you're going to need to see. Isaiah's not going, I don't think, until he sees God seated upon his throne. Now he's volunteering and he's eager to go do what he normally would have been scared to death to do. So I don't know what it is about the kingdom that frightens you. Maybe it's just sharing the gospel with people. You're not going to share the gospel with people very much with a hearing only knowledge of God. You're going to have to see something about God. It will compel you in a very different way to live out the gospel. Let me do this. I want, I want, to, I want to take some time for us to, to pray together. So I'm going, to, I'm going to ask the small group leaders, if you guys would do justice to that last page. There's a great insightful, helpful quote from David Wells on that last page. Spend some time in your small groups reading through that and looking at it because it's going to diagnose the trouble we have with getting around what helps us to see God. All right, but I, I, you know, this is not dismissal. This is early, right? We could, we could serve breakfast right now and hang out for a while. It's only 1130. But I, I want to give you time. Eric, you can come. I want to give you time to be able to respond because there, there are a couple of categories of people here that I, I think need to pay careful, careful attention to this revelation. And I just think it's clearly what scripture shows us. There's a knowledge of God that the people in Romans chapter one had. They had some kind of a knowledge of God, but it wasn't a knowledge that produced in them obedience, a God-honoring life, gratitude and worship. That could be you. There's an awareness of God that Job had. There's an awareness of God that Isaiah had. And then there's something else that happened in their life. There is a seeing of God that brought their whole life to a different level. It fixed things that were broken. It rescued them in darkness. It launched them in ministry and in purpose in their lives. So this is not a small thing. It is, however, a very common thing. Let me tell you two ways that this is very, very, very common. One is, I think I wrote this in your outline. One is what I would call second generation Christians. All right, be honest with me here. This is, this is the easiest honesty question I'm going to ask you. How many of you guys were raised by believing parents? Hold your hands up. Okay, I know some of you aren't kids. That's why I want your hands up because I want you to realize something about yourself, whether you're 65 or 16. There's a lot that God imparted to you that you've heard. And that was a good thing. Right? It's, a, it's a good thing for us to hear. This is, this is not a fault. Like, hey, let's, let's chop off all hearing from now on. At Lakeview, we just see God. We don't do any hearing. No secondhand stuff. No, there's lots of secondhand things in the Bible. And that's a good thing. So we don't fault that at all. You're, you know, you're here today. You're listening to me say something to you. Secondhand. But if you're a second generation Christian, you run an enormous risk, an enormous risk that God is not real to you in a bunch of ways. 
Now, he was really real to somebody else close to you. He was so real, perhaps, in their life that he turned their world upside down, shook them, all kinds of stuff came out of them flying, and then they've got stories to tell you, and they've told you about their, their past and what they were once like and what happened when they met God and all this renovation. They saw God, and then they came back, and they told you about what they saw in God, and you heard about God. Do you see the difference? That's not a bad thing, but it's not all that it needs to be in your life. You need to take what you have heard and go get some see in yourself. You need to see it for yourself. Because the impact of you seeing it will be very different than the impact of you just hearing it. So in a moment, I, I want to I pray for, I don't care how old you are, because I, I don't know that it, you could be 60 years old and not realizing there are some things in you that you've only heard, you've only heard about God, and you've not pressed on to see them. And you can be 60 or 16 and needing to do the exact same thing in seeing God. Second category is what I call secondhand smoke Christians. Secondhand smoke Christians are all of us who have an aspect of our knowing God that has come from somebody else teaching us. That's not a bad thing either. It's all over the Bible. We should be doing it. You should be here this morning and I should be teaching you. But to a great extent, this is what this is right now. This is, this is what it should be for a pastor. A pastor spends a, a significant chunk of his week pulling away from human contact, time with people, etc., and, and burying himself in the scriptures and, and encountering God in these scriptures. Right? I, I'm not just up here to just... I mean, I, I use quotes because quotes provoke me, and guys say it better than I can say it. So I'd rather you hear what John Piper said about that than the best that I could come up with because it provokes me. But in my provoking, I, you know, I'm getting John's revelation, John Piper's insights secondhand. He sat with God and saw it. And then he told me about it. Now, what I want to do is I want to hear it. And then now I want to go sit with God. And I want to see it. Now, what preaching is, is preachers sitting with God and seeing some things in their life, in their study, and then telling the church. And, and so in a way that if all you ever do in your life is read other people's books, read other people's blogs, read other people's daily devotions, attend church on Sunday, and you don't ever sit down with the Bible and encounter God See God yourself. I mean, we give you notes, uh, you know, not so you can check the spelling and the grammar, because you know, that will keep you busy probably with my notes, but, but for you to have the opportunity to dig deeper and to sit with God and say, Lord, <clears throat> this passage right here and, and Keith's little idea here and that little illustration that he used, it, it's like a log. I want to stand on it so I can, I can see God for myself. That's why we do this on Sunday mornings. Do you know how many Christians never do that? All they've got is some great ideas about what somebody else saw. And then it became what they heard. 
Can I just tell you, in the day of your darkness, in the moment of your unhappiness, when your life gets tried like Job's, that's not going to be enough. The kingdom of God being advanced into difficult settings, us sharing the gospel, us laying down our lives, us figuring out how to overcome busyness with serving in the kingdom of God, us taking our finances that are squeezed month to month and and giving towards the kingdom of God in faith, that's risky stuff. And you're not going to do it just based on what you have heard. You're going to have to see something of God yourself. So here's what, here's what I want to do this morning. I want God to help us move from being a glancing people to being a, a gazing people. I want God to awaken in your own soul an awareness. Are you, are you a glancer at God? Are you a person who gazes at God? You stare at him. You take him in. You study him. And you respond. And you're being affected by God. Let's stand up together. I'm going to pray for a moment just for those of you guys who are second generation Christians. One of the great reasons why teenagers, young adults struggle so much in their life is because they, they, they're trying to function on what they've heard and not what they've seen. And that's why you track some people as they get older. It's like they kind of settle down and some things. Well, over time, you begin to see things for yourself. It begins to be what you've encountered with God, not just what somebody else encountered and told you about. But this morning, can we just pray for a miracle-working God to step into second-generation Christians? Young people especially, young adults, and to awaken a sense of personal encounter. You, you encountering God. You seeing God. You taking things that are familiar from your past and letting God fill it in right in front of you having a Job conversation with God about the things that make him who he is. All right, so let me, let me see all my second generation Christians again. Raise your hand because we want to pray for you. All right, guys, everybody in the church, you see hands? Let's pray for it. Pray for everybody who's a second. Let's just pray together for them. Lord, this morning, well, there's just a reality that for each of us, certain conditions have given us one level of knowledge of you when there is yet another level available. And so, Lord, we pray this morning. God, I first pray and say, Lord, thank you for generations that commend you to other generations. Lord, thank you for every word, every phrase, every image, every story, every testimony, every passage that has been spoken from one generation to another. Lord, it has become the seedbed from which you work. Lord, what we ask, in addition to the good of hearing, Lord, it's good for us to hear. But Lord, that in ways that would be renovating, in ways that would be deepening, Lord, you would take second generation believers 
And Lord, you would call out to them in a unique way. Lord, you would tell them, here, step on that log right there and and look for me. Look for me. You look for me. I want to meet you. I want to show myself to you. I want to take what you've heard and I want to make it what you've seen. And I want to send you back into this world with things you've seen. Things you've been impacted by. Things that have become yours. Not just things that you're proud to have somebody else own, but you own them. You have seen them. You have been in my presence. What I pray this morning for those of us who are here, no matter second generation, first, whatever. Lord, that the days of gazing are too far in the past for us. We have become a people who glance at you. We're living on revelation that's four and five and 15 years old. We've encountered you in some great ways. We have gazed at you. We have studied. But it's been a while. And Lord, our knowledge of you is a glancing knowledge of you. So if you're here this morning and sense the Lord is speaking to you about that, just, just raise your hand to God and say, God, that's me. Tell God that this morning. Say, God, I've become a glancing person. Let me see your hands. Come on. Hold on, because I want you to ask God to do something about that. I want to pray that in this moment, God who dwells in our midst would supernaturally do something of an awakening, something of a shock in your system, something of a reverberating revelation that God would come in and enamor you again, and capture you again, and give you a, a gazing, staring, studying view of God. Lord, would you do that in our hearts this morning? Lord, it's so easy. Life is so noisy. Distractions are so many. And Lord, we feel like sometimes all we can do is just sort of grab a quick bite of toast on the way out. So we read a little half page of devotional information. Wrestle with a passage for a second and run. And Lord, our lives are in the conditions of those who have glanced at God but not gazed at God. Lord, we need to be fixed. Our lives need to be fixed in so many ways. But Lord, that fixing isn't just a determination on our part this morning that, doggone it, we're going to be fixed. We're going to be broken, changed people. Lord, our need is to see you. Our need is to gaze upon God, to drink in a revelation of who you are, to stand still long enough to see something about you, to sit down with your word accompanied by the presence of your spirit to unlock revelation to us that warms our soul, that brings tears to our eyes, that overwhelms us with an awareness of you. Lord, we sang a song this morning. What an amazing mystery. That your grace has come to me. What an amazing love I see. That song just gets sung unless we see something, God. It's just words with a tune. Lord, when I see your purity, 
And I see your holiness. And I see that you are not like us. And you dwell in unapproachable light, Lord. And I see you in my life. I, I, I wonder in mystery, what are you doing hanging out in my neighborhood? What are you doing involved with me? Why would you call me by name? Why would you seek me and find me? Why would you patiently care for me and lead me in the deeper truth and convict me? Lord, I, I've seen something of your greatness. It causes me to be puzzled. It causes me to see this is a mystery. God, we are a people starving for the image of God. For we have exchanged your glory for earthly images. Lord, this morning, help us. Lord, we made a regrettable decision in exchanging that. Lord, this morning, we'll exchange it back, Lord. We'll exchange all of our prizes and our treasures and our goals. We want to exchange our ambitions and our great desires for something temporary, something fleshly oriented. God, we, we want to exchange that for the glory of the incorruptible God who is full of love and transcendence and beauty and wisdom and awe and power and majesty and care and faithfulness. So if you're here this morning, maybe you don't have a story to tell that you remember the day when you came to God and you said, God, I want you more than anything else in my life. I want to turn to you. This morning, can I just give you that opportunity to do this? The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that God so much wanted to be reconciled to you that he sent his own son in the form of a human being to die a death and to receive a punishment so that he could remove a barrier between you and God. That's what the good news is. It's the announcement that this barrier that existed for everybody has been torn down and God has come to you to say, come to me. God wants to receive you into his life and he wants you to receive him into yours. Listen, if you've never done that, this morning you can do that. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. If you'd like to do that, you've not given your life over to Christ. and said, Lord, my life is yours. I, I, I put my faith in you for my future. I turn away from doing this thing my own way. And I turn to you this morning. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But just, just show me your hand if you'd like to do it. Just raise your hand for a second. Just see you if you're here that. Thank you. Anybody else this morning you'd like to do that? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? pray for you.
just make you aware of what's happening as I pray for you. You come to Christ and you put your faith in him. This great God who for all of us has been out there somewhere, he comes to take up his life inside of you. He comes to give you life. There's no more unhappier existence than a life missing the life of God on the inside. And so as we pray and you turn to God in faith, the Holy Spirit comes to take up his life inside of you. Today, this very morning, you walk from this place a different person. That's what's happened in lives all around this room. God has come and done that for us. So if you raised your hand or maybe you feel like I don't, I don't want to raise my hand, but you want to pray that prayer with me. Just let's bow our heads together. You speak to God as I lead you in this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, this morning I turn to you. Lord, I, I know that I've been guilty of sin.